Well, we're going to go ahead and start. Let's uh, open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that you've given to us. Thank you for your grace that we get to walk in and, Lord, that we get to experience. And in your grace, we find love and mercy and compassion and grace or uh, favor. And uh, we just praise you for that. We give thanks this morning as we talk about the importance of shepherding our hearts, but especially in the discipline and practice of prayer Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would give us greater resolve. Uh, Lord, that you would encourage us in areas of, of strength. And Lord, that you would, um, by your word, even admonish us and, and point us forward in areas where, where there's weakness or neglect, need for growth. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, you should have received the outline or grabbed the outline on the table on the way in. This morning, we're going to talk about personal heart shepherding and the practice of prayer. Prayer is an absolutely crucial part of the Christian life. It is God's design for the Christian that we be pray, prayer, prayers. There we go. All right. Still getting the, the motor running. Um, that, that we pray, that we interact with God, that we commune with the God that we love through prayer. And in your outline, there's a couple quotes that I think capture the importance of prayer, the necessity of prayer that I want to kind of use as a launching pad for our lesson this morning. The first is by Robert Murray McShane. And he says, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. That's a sobering statement, a convicting statement to think about the, the summation of who we are before the Lord being, being exemplified through our practice of prayer. To think that we are something great and yet our dependence upon the Lord, our seeking the Lord, our communion with the Lord in prayer is small would be misguided. You see the next one by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. And therefore, it is at the same time the ultimate test of one's true spiritual condition. There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Ultimately, therefore, one discovers the real condition of his spiritual life when he examines himself in private, when he is alone with God. And have we not all known what it is to find that somehow we have less to say to God when we are alone than when we are in the presence of others. It should not be so, but it often is. So that it is when we have left the realm of activities and outward dealings with other people and are alone with God that we really know where we stand in a spiritual sense. Again, when we think about the assessment of how are we doing before the Lord, how is our life going before God, to think in categories outside of how are we doing in faithfulness of prayer is misguided and rather what we do alone with the Lord in our personal heart shepherding and prayer and dependence upon him is actually a clearer revealer of the summation of how we are doing spiritually than how active we are to talk with others. It's just, you, we, we oftentimes find it's easier to talk with others about how great God is and yet to neglect actually talking with the Lord about how great he is. And yet that intimate time with the Lord is a greater revealer of where our heart truly is before him. Oswald Chambers says, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. 
And then you see the quote there by John Piper. He says, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. And that's the temptation that many of us face is, man, my prayer life just wasn't, isn't what it should be. I'm so busy. I'm so slammed. And yet there's plenty of time for social media and so on. So we're going to be looking at the discipline of prayer, at, at how we might cultivate a life of prayer. You could say this lesson is, is titled Cultivating a Life of Prayer, Personal Heart Shepherding. And prayer is really a discipline. I, I doubt any one of us would say that our prayer lives have arrived. And oftentimes prayer can be a daunting topic. Prayer can be and should be one of the most sweet and precious, intimate, encouraging, emboldening, comforting practices in the Christian life. And at the same time, it can be at times confusing for the Christian. Have you ever wondered what exactly you should be praying for in specific situations? Prayer can feel pointless. It can feel lonely. I've prayed so much and I don't perceive anything changing. It can seem ineffective. It doesn't seem that God ever actually make things, makes things happen the way that I ask. I pray for something and the opposite happens. Why pray? And it's important for each of us to evaluate, to consider how we actually view prayer. Is it a preliminary to the actual work of the Christian life? Is it something where God's our cosmic genie, where we go to him in times where we want something to be different? If you didn't pray for a week or a month, would you feel it? Would your life be impacted? Would it be any different? The reality is that oftentimes prayer is a neglected discipline, and oftentimes we look for excuses regarding things happening to us or outside of us as opposed to us actually being disciplined in the practice of prayer. And we know what it's like to be men. We like to do things ourselves. We like to conquer our own domain. We like to control our own destiny and press things forward to be vulnerable or contrite before anyone at times can be difficult for some. And yet the Lord calls us to do this, to be humble and contrite before him, to tremble before him, to fear him is the beginning of wisdom. And yet he also calls us to come to him as we would a loving father presenting our requests to him. And so how do we cultivate, how do we, how do we pursue, how do we practice a diligent life of prayer? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. First, I want to start with prayer in its purpose, prayer in its purpose that should be on the second page of your outline And being that we're going to be spending this morning talking about prayer, I think it's important that we define what prayer is. And John Bunyan has a, a wonderful quote that really encapsulates prayer in a succinct and helpful, thorough manner. He says, prayer is sincere. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit. For such things as God has promised or according to his word, for the good of the church with submission in faith to the will of God. Uh, that's an excellent summary of prayer. And those first 
words there, sincere, sensible, affectionate. There's a sensibility that we're called to in our prayer life. First Peter says, be sober-minded for the purpose of prayer. Uh, Prayer is to be intentional, thoughtful, sober-minded, serious-minded, or sensible in mind. That, that you're thinking clearly. There's no explanation in scripture or description in scripture of some sort of senseless, mindless uh, babble as a private prayer language or anything along those lines. Scripture describes the believer as being called to sober-mindedness, articulate, clear, sincere in heart, affectionate. We see this in the Psalms. Uh, prayers are not devoid of emotions, while there's a sensible nature to our prayers, there's also a, a, a personal affection that prayers are driven out of. A transparency, a, an honest explanation and, and pouring of the heart or soul to God. We know this comes through Christ. We can approach the throne of grace because of Christ. And we know that the Holy Spirit aids us in our weaknesses, as Romans 8 talks about, gives us assistance in our prayers before the Lord. And our prayers are, are best suited when they are in line with what God has promised or what God has instructed from Scripture, when we align ourselves with God's word or with God's will. And there's certainly a freedom to ask for things and to present desires of our heart, but to be mindful and intentional that our prayers are aligned with God's word and are rooted out of motivations that God calls the Christian to have at the core in their heart before him. And prayer is also corporate. If you look at the Lord's pattern of prayer, his example of prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, all of the pronouns are plural. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our transgressions as we, and so on. The, 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 the pronouns are plural. I think Jesus was intentional about that. There's a mind beyond all only ourselves always in our prayer. We're thinking much, much bigger than only us. That doesn't mean we don't pray, Lord, help me in personal godliness, help me grow in self-control, help me grow in faithfulness before you. Don't let that be the entirety of your prayers. Pray for the church, pray for one another. We're called to do that. Then as we think through prayer, and what it is, we also need to think through the purpose of prayer. John fourteen thirteen is really helpful. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Why? What is the purpose that Jesus, why does Jesus, why does God answer prayers that are asked in Jesus' name? For this reason, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Ultimately, our prayers are about the glory of God, not about convenience, not about ease of life, not about personal comfort predominantly. The overarching purpose of our prayer life that everything else needs to be in subjection to. There may be subordinate purposes, but what each subordinate purpose must be subject to is the, the preeminent purpose, the supreme purpose, which is that God would be glorified. And that should be everything in the Christian life. But here we see Jesus actually expressing his sentiment that prayers are answered so that God would be glorified. So that should be our heart when we pray. 
Well, I want to transition. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at a model of prayer from Paul in the book of Colossians. So you can go ahead and open your Bible to Colossians 1. We're going to make some observations from this model of prayer, and then we're going to transition to some hindrances to a faithful prayer life. What are some things we should beware of and some aids to a faithful prayer life? And then we'll wrap up uh, with a couple things for consideration. So first, a model of prayer, and we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And in Colossians 1, we see Paul's prayer regarding the believers in Colossae, and he's going to thank God for things that he sees in them. That's really the launching pad of his prayer for the Colossians. He starts in the first section offering thanksgiving, a, a prayer of thanks. And it's important to understand that everything that is worthy of praise or that is good only comes from God. When you look at one another within the body of Christ. When you experience good things, we know as James says, all of those good things come down from the the father of lights, from God. And so when we see good things in one another, when we experience good things, we are to give thanks to God for those, to recognize that is his doing, that is his work. And if anything good comes from you or comes from me, it's because God has put it there. And that should actually have a humbling effect upon us. It is good to come before the Lord with thanksgiving because it recognizes and expresses that we recognize his supremacy and his power and his goodness and whatever we are presenting as objects of of, uh, that which we give thanks for. So first, let's look at verses three through eight. We're going to look at Paul's thanksgiving first, and then we'll jump into his petitions in the second section in 9 through 14. So Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Paul says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And so there you see that sentiment that really catapults into his initial prayer. We give thanks to God, praying always for you. And then he's going to describe what he gives thanks for, starting in verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also, excuse me, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant or slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he informed us, he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So what I want to do is I want to look at five things for which Paul gives thanks. Five things for which Paul gives thanks. And it starts with number one, their faith in Jesus. That's your first blank on the outline. So under Paul's thanksgiving, we see first their faith in Jesus or their faith in Christ. And we see that in four, in verse four. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. That's how Paul starts. And this is really the, the most exciting report that he could hear. As a church planner, apostle, useful vessel for the purposes of God to invest himself, to share the gospel, to pour into people, and then hear a report down the road regarding their faith in Christ. That was the pinnacle for Paul. Ever since the moment he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus, he gives thanks to God. Paul, Paul had never met these believers personally at this point. He hasn't visited them, but the report has come of their trusting confidence in Christ. And so he rejoices and he thanks God. 
And this is where the gospel starts. It starts with faith in Jesus. If you have faith in Jesus, you're a believer. You're a Christian. It's not more complicated than that. You must possess faith, and you must possess faith in the correct object, and that correct object is the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's a summary statement of their salvation, that they have faith in Christ. In order to have the gospel in your life, you have to f- have faith. In order to have faith, you must have the obje- true faith, saving faith. The object of that faith must be Christ. And that's what they possess. And this is helpful to think through. If there's those in the body, maybe those in your life that you are struggling in your heart to cultivate affection for, to even know how to pray, well, listen, if, if they're believers, start with thanking God for the gift of faith that he's given them. Recognize that they have been rescued by the grace of God, and that's the same grace that I needed. They're, they're a brother or sister in Christ, and thank God for that. Cultivate thankfulness in your heart. There's always something for which to give thanks to God for in the life of a believer, a fellow believer. Well, next, Paul's thanksgiving is summarized through their love for the saints. Their love for the saints. That's the next manifestation of the gospel in their lives. And so he starts at the biggest picture category, their faith in Christ. And now he's going to start narrowing in on some of the expressions of their spiritual walk before the Lord and the expressions of their faith in Christ. So he says in verse four, since we heard of your faith in Christ, and then he says, and the love which you have for all the saints. There are results of genuine faith. Faith in Jesus produces specific things. The gospel takes effect in someone's heart by the gift of faith from God. But one of the first things that faith in Jesus produces is love for one another, love for the saints. And we've looked at it in the past, but John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he goes on to say, by this, all men will know that you are my my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the greatest ways as a believer that we find that we can guard ourselves from sin in this life is actually by cultivating a sincere love, Christ-like love and affection for others. And just think about this for a moment. Selfishness, greed, covetousness, anger, bitterness, discontentment, all can be set aside by the active putting on of love for others. Your tendency to envy another when you stop looking at yourself and look at how to care for them intentionally, to, to rejoice with them, to hope all things with them, to die to self for them, is increased greatly. This is a way of shepherding our heart towards godliness by actually cultivating a love for others, by praying for others and thanking God for his work in others also. Number three, the third blank in your outline that Paul prays for, the next observation regarding Paul's thanksgiving is their hope in heaven. The hope in heaven. Believers have a special hope. Look at verse five. He says, they thank God for them because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Here we see 
this special hope, this hope that is worthy of thanking God for. There's a hope laid up for or reserved or in store in heaven. And a Christian can endure hardship and endure persecutions and persevere through trials and press on in tragedy, all because Christians have a hope in something outside of ourselves and in something outside of this life only. A world beyond this one. We have a hope in the work of Christ, which is given to us, a hope in eternity, a hope in heaven. Whatever hardship, whatever struggles, whatever fighting of sin and pursuing of holiness, whatever persecutions we may face on behalf of Christ, we can count them, but momentary light affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, this eternal weight, this hope of what awaits us of being with our Savior for eternity. So we give thanks to God for this hope that is laid up for us in heaven. It has implications on our lives. Uh, Moses is a perfect example of this. Hebrews 11, you can, you can turn there if you'd like, or you can just listen. Hebrews 11, verses 24. Hebrews 11, verse 24 says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of kings, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Just thinking about that, Moses counted enduring the hardships and reproach of Christ in this life as greater because of what awaited him in eternity. How sweet is that? He feared the one who is unseen, not the things that were seen. Next, Paul thanks God for the believers in Colossae, and their next, their growth in fruit. Their growth in fruit. Faith in Christ, love for the saints, hope in heaven, growth in fruit. Here we see that the gospel produces fruit, both in personal transformation of individuals and in corporate growth of the church. Look at verse 6. He talks about this word of truth, the gospel, and then in verse 6 he says, which has come to you. So that's the word of truth. The gospel has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you. There is this constant bearing of fruit that the gospel is producing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, and here we see this growth in truth that is spreading forth broadly, but it's also taking root in their own lives personally. And so Paul is giving thanks for their, their fruitfulness in the Lord. This is disciples growing disciples. And the gospel not only saves individuals, but is a means of change in their life, of sanctification and growth, of producing fruit. And Paul here is looking for evidences of the gospel playing itself out in the life of the Colossians. And, and he can see it. There is growth in fruit, growth in holiness. And this is pleasing to the Lord. We have opportunities to acknowledge this really almost every week in fellowship groups. It's a great way where we intentionally get to hear and share with one another how we're doing in our Bible reading and how God's impacting our life and where we're seeing God answer prayers and how we're fighting sin and how we can 
uh, be aided in our fighting of sin, how we're sharing the gospel. And when we dive into those things with one another and have the opportunity to share those spiritual disciplines and how we're doing and how the Lord's using us and growing us, I, it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to acknowledge God's grace in one another's life. And oftentimes, uh, at least in our group, after somebody shares, we pray and we lift up their prayer requests. And we also have an opportunity to thank God for his work where there's clearly good thinking to, to recognize that comes from the Lord. And obviously that should, must, does happen outside of fellowship groups, but it's a wonderful opportunity to intentionally get to hear of those things and, and equip ourselves all the more to be able to pray, the, pray these types of prayers for one another. And so that's growth and fruit. And then lastly, in Paul's Thanksgiving, we see, and this is really an interesting one that I think is worth noting because it's significant, but we oftentimes don't think along these lines. Paul thanks for the uh, summary statement here. The best way I could summarize it is the authentication from leaders authentication from leaders. You might say affirmation from leaders, authentication from leaders, encouragement from leaders. But we see this in verses seven and eight. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, okay, our beloved fellow bondservant or slave who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he, so Epaphras was a leader in the church of Colossae, he informed us of your love in the spirit. So Epaphras, this church leader in Colossae, reported to Paul of the Colossians' love in the Spirit. Epaphras came and reported of the sincerity of the Colossian believers' love in the Spirit. We know that salvation is only by grace. It's ultimately only God's work. Yet God uses human means as channels of that grace. And Epaphras brought the good news of the gospel to the Colossians. They learned it from him. He was their mentor in the faith and Paul's representative and fellow slave in Christ. He was a faithful leader. And he then testified of the Colossians' love in the spirit. The Colossian leaders in Epaphras authenticated, he testified of, of their faith, of their love. He assessed it as true and genuine. And this is definitely something the gospel produces and something to give thanks God for, to give thanks to God for. In order to have, however, authentication from your leaders, what must be present? A proximity to your leaders, an engagement in the church. If somebody was on the fringe, never around, never engaged, what could Epaphras say of that one? What would be necessary in order for him to give an account specifically regards to the genuineness or the authentication of your love in the spirit, your love for Christ, your dependence upon Christ, your faithfulness to Christ? God has a design for his people, and it is one where his people are under authority, under biblical human authority given by God. And God's good intention is that he uses flawed human authority in his reciprocal care for his church, for his people. Obviously, we're all under the Lord's authority ultimately, but there is also a structure that God has designed for his people. And there should be a consistency, a transparency, an eagerness to have your life connected and submitted to others. Every single member in the church is under God's authority and under God's authority is also under human authority. And this stands true for elders. 
Elders are sheep first. And becoming an elder doesn't take you into a different category where now you're only accountable to God. Elders are still under authority. Whose authority are elders under? Jesus, absolutely. Who else? The other elders. Absolutely. My life is eagerly submitted to Tom. My ministry is open-handed to Tom to speak into my life. I, I, there's no independent fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants uh, lone ranger. That's not God's ideal intention for the church. Every individual should, should be. The ideal intention is that their life is submitted to human authority. Even elders are to be submitted to the other elders. And so consider this in your participation in the body of Christ. Consider this in your participation at Gilbert Bible. Do you have people in your life who can testify to these types of things? When you look at this list, faith in Christ, love for the saints, hope in heaven, growth and fruit, are there spiritual leaders in your life that have access to your life to be able to give count to this? And this may be uncomfortable and difficult. I understand that. It, life can be full. It can be busy. We, at times, can have a tendency to place unbiblical contingencies on our, on our relationships before we'll let people in or fully engage. There's a temptation to allow life to become too busy. I get it. Life is full. We've got this commitment, this commitment, this commitment, this thing going on, and we squeeze body life into the margin. That's not God's intention. That's not what God would call us to. We should prioritize this. This is important. It impacts the body of Christ. This can especially be uncomfortable or difficult if you've been hurt in the past by church leaders. To, to make your life accessible by church leaders where you have been sinned against egregiously in the past can be especially difficult. And yet our circumstances don't dictate, they're not a, a grounds for disobedience to God's word. And elders are called to shepherd the flock and the flock is called to be subject to their elders. And so to be subject, you must be in proximity. You must be acceptable. Even if it's hard, even if it's not comfortable, it comes down to faith in God, trusting God. It may not always produce the easiest results, but what is God's promise for the believer? He will use it to make you more like Christ. Persevere, press on, even in man's errors and faults. Tom and myself and Tyler, we will sin against you. Inevitably, we probably already have on many occasions. We will not always choose the most wise decision. There might be times of, of foolishness, not because we want to be careless or take our shepherding responsible, responsibility light, but because, you know what, we're sinners saved by grace too. Your hope of submission to the elders at Gilbert Bible isn't because we're sinless. But God has placed us in the position of authority. Uh, hopefully, as long as we are in that authority, we will be qualified men. And if we're ever not qualified, we would be removed from holding that authority. And as qualified men, we are, will hopefully be humble enough to, to repent, seek forgiveness, reconcile, uh, confess when we err, and hopefully godly enough to press forward in godly leadership. 
but ultimately the call to be in proximity to the local church, to have your life submitted to the local church isn't verified or, or valid because everything goes well or easy when you live this way. It's because God said so, and that's enough. And so we trust God. As we consider these things that Paul gives thanks for, he's doing this from a distance based off of reports, and he holds such a fond affection. Uh, could someone pray this prayer, giving thanks to God in regards to you? That's an important question for you to consider. Also, do you think about these types of things in your prayer life for others? To thank God, to praise God for these things in one another. We should cultivate hearts of thankfulness. This is crucial. This is actually God's design and instruction. When you look at Philippians 4, uh, a significant means of putting off anxiety in your life is presenting to your, your requests to God with thankfulness. Cultivating a life of thankfulness is a means of, of curing and repenting from anxiety. And God's promise there is if you present your request to God with thanksgiving, that there will be a supernatural peace that transcends understanding that will guard your hearts and minds. There is a guarding of your heart and your mind when you intentionally cultivate thankfulness to God and come before him in humble dependence. What a gift that is. Well, now, as we think about this prayer of thanksgiving, we're going to transition to Paul's petitions. Uh, let's get to the good stuff, right? What does he actually ask God for? Million dollars? Sports car? What's he going after here? Well, here we see Paul's petitions in verses 9 through 14. Let's read those verses together. Two. There we go. I turned it off when I coughed, and then I thought I turned it back on, and I did. Verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. You want an example of how to pray? There it is. If you ever wonder, how can I be praying for Josh? How can I be praying for Tom? How can I be praying for Tyler? Run here. I would always covet your prayers in this regard. Pray for one another. Pray for your spouse. Pray this for those in your fellowship group. Pray for this church for these things. And I summarize these wonderful, beautiful verses in four ways. And it starts with Paul's petition being rooted in their thinking. We see that in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There we see knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Filled. To be filled is the, the word that would be used to describe the imagery of a sail on a sailboat being filled with air. So imagine a limp sail on a sailboat and all of a sudden the wind starts blowing and that that sail just fills with air and it catapults the boat forward. That's the kind of imagery here that you would be filled up in such a regard with knowledge, wisdom, 
understanding. And these are all thinking categories. These are all inner man, heart, thinking, where you are, your mind kind of categories. We need to know God's truth, know how to apply God's word, what to do and why and how to do it. When we think about knowledge, we need to know the truth from God's word. When we think about wisdom, we need to understand how to live in light of that knowledge and understanding to, to then know how to press forward and make good sense of these things in a way that is honoring to the Lord. This is the type of thing where you're not driven by emotions. You're not driven by experiences that cause you to feel certain ways, looking for existential kind of experiences and feelings to guide you forward. This is actually to oftentimes fight what you feel with what you know to be true. I'm going to not be driven by my emotions in this moment. I'm not going to let my emotions conjured up from past experiences or assumptions or presumptions guide me. But what do I know is actually true? God, give me the insight to know how to step forward in light of that truth so that I could honor you. To control yourself, to handle how you feel appropriately, to actually take what you know and let them be a bridle for your emotions to direct them appropriately. So oftentimes it's tail wagging the dog, right? We do stuff because we feel a certain way. And so we start to think a certain way because of how we feel. I feel uncomfortable, so I don't think I want to go to this thing. Oh, wait, no. I should go to this thing, and I'm going to tell myself to feel enthusiastic. Well, that sounds ridiculous. You know what? But we're called to. 1 Peter 2 tells us to crave God's word, to long for God's word. I don't feel like reading my Bible. You know what? Tell yourself. You feel like reading God's Bible, God's word. That's what we're called to. We actually are called to direct our affections and our emotions. Well, that's ridiculous. I can't always do it. Well, what's the means for doing it? Renewing your heart and your mind with truth. It's not going to come because you kind of passively just wait for your emotions to get to a spot. How do, you, how do you direct your emotions where they should go? Consistent, diligent heart shepherding, right? Crave for the, the pure milk of the word. If you have tasted, so that you may grow in reference of salvation, if you have tasted the goodness of God, and really it's since you have tasted the goodness of God. Putting aside sin and diligence in the word, it tastes good. The more you partake of what tastes good, the more you cultivate a craving for what is good. And so we pursue what is right. Paul does this. He prays for their, their thinking, their knowledge, their wisdom, their understanding. He also prays for their decisions, that they would make good choices. Look at verse 10. There's purpose behind this heart-level right thinking. And it's so that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him. In all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He wants them to make good, good decisions, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. Those are lofty prayers. Paul prays that they would make the right decision and the best decision in every way, every time. The decision that will bring about the most glory to God and the most spiritual good in every choice. Pray that prayer in the morning. God, this morning, every decision that's before me in every manner in making a decision that comes before me, help me to choose the right one in the right way today. Help me to be humbly dependent. Help me to value your glory as the aim of every decision that I make today. That's a good prayer. 
That's a prayer that the Lord loves to answer. And what we find is that sometimes it's not so much about the indecision that we're praying about, but how we make the decision. Lord, help me to honor you in this process. These monumental things that I, should I take this job or this job? Should I buy this house or this house? How do we ever decide? Well, sometimes it's not so much about the indecision, end decision, not indecision, end decision, the final decision. It's not so much about that, but are you trusting God in the process? Are you pleasing him in every respect? Are you bearing fruit in this? This isn't living in a way that you're good enough and make the cut. This is living in response to the fact that God made the cut in Christ and you want to walk in response to what he's done. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? It's not that you're being worthy of receiving it, but you've received it. Now live in a, in a manner appropriate with that. We talked about that at the beginning of Philippians in chapter one as well. And then he also prays for their steadfastness. Their steadfastness. We see this in verse 11. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Steadfastness, it's to remain under a difficult circumstance. Patience is emotional quietness in the face of unfavorable circumstances. Not everything about the Christian life is easy. We actually need endurance. We need steadfastness. We need to remain patient under hardships under trials can we pray for relief from those trials absolutely but you know what i more than getting out of trials we should pray for steadfastness endurance patience in the midst of those trials that we would be godly in the hardship that we would be more like christ in the hardship patience emotional quietness in the face of unfavorable circumstances Staying with it, persevering, not giving up, pressing on. And then lastly, Paul prays for their worldview, their worldview, their perspective, how they view this life and beyond. Look at verse 12 through 14, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of life, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Don't live in this life alone. Recognize you've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. You've been saved from the darkness of this world. Don't navigate this life as if this life were all there is. Don't concern yourself in storing up riches and treasures of this life as if that's what your life should be about. Your life should be about the glory of God for eternity. You're part of the kingdom of his beloved son. This is a very real reality. And when his son returns and establishes his throne on earth, you will reign with him. Every believer. This isn't it. As bad as and as hard as it gets on this earth, Paul compares the difficulties of this world with eternity and their passing and mom momentary. This is his worldview. It's, it's centered on God's world, God's word. God's reality. It's something beyond this world. And so we remember this. We rejoice in this. We renew our minds with the reality of the gospel and that life is to be lived for God's purposes. 
Now, this pattern of prayer is hopefully helpful in thinking through some things to pray for, to pray about, to think about, to thank God. If you're wanting to bolster your prayer life and going, man, I, I, don't, I don't always know where to start when I pray, start here. Start with these things. Look for these things and build on that. Expand on that. Give thanks to God for these things in yourself, in your spouse, in those in this church. Petition these things for yourself, for your spouse, for this church. Pray these things. This can be a helpful guideline for you as you seek to cultivate a greater life of prayer. Now, what I want to do next is talk about cultivating the the discipline of prayer by looking at some potential hindrances and aids to a life of prayer. So we've looked at a pattern of prayer. We have kind of a roadmap. If we want to know where to start in our prayer life, those are some helpful observations from Colossians 1. I also want to spend some time looking at hindrances, snares. And it's helpful to recognize these potential snares in order to guard against them. So what are some potential hindrances to a life dependent on prayer? And you should be on page three of your outline for this morning. Everybody there? Perfect. All right. Well, first, the first hindrance to a life of dependent prayer is this. It's, it's lack of belief. Lack of belief. That's your first blank or lack of faith, lack of belief. Prayer is an act of faith. Now, when we think about that, what are things that we must believe in our prayer life? Well, we must believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God rewards those who diligently seek him, Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. This isn't the kind of belief where, man, whatever I really want, as long as I believe hard enough, God will give me what I want in this moment. You know, we need to believe that God is sovereign, that God is good, that God is faithful, that he gives good gifts to his children, that he's trustworthy. And we present our requests and we, like our Savior, say, but not my will, yours be done. Here's where I'm at before you. Here's what I can see. Here's what makes sense to me. But Lord, you see so much more broadly and clearer than I do. And so your will be done. What you think is best, make it so. Please, Lord. So we need a faith in that, that God is a rewarder of those who seek him, that we can actually please him when we come before him in humble faith. Number two, we must believe that God is there and interested in your prayers. God is, the Lord of the universe, the eternally existing, all-powerful God, desires lowly, measly, old me to actually pray. How wonderful is this? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. James 4.8, what a wonderful reality. God's interested in our prayers. We need to believe that. Prayer matters. God wants us to pray. God hears our prayers, we believe this, he's a rewarder of those who seek him, and he wants us to seek him. And then three, we must understand that his answer may not be what, when, or how you expect, but his ways are best. That, you must have faith in that, you must believe that. Lord, you want me to pray, you reward those who pray, you desire me to pray, and you do what is right in my prayers. 
Psalm 18.30, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. He never misses it in answering prayers. He, he just never gets it wrong. There's not one prayer that he didn't answer where he really should have. There's not one prayer where he didn't listen to your request. He did things his way and he really should have done it your way. That just never happens. His ways are blameless. He's always perfect and we must believe that. So really uh, uh, addressing the potential of a hindrance to a life de dependent of prayer is to cultivate faith. Believe these things. Guard against the lack of belief in these things. Number two, letter B, is the lack of persistence. Or I guess you don't have letters on your outline. Lack of persistence. Uh, we're used to immediate responses in day-to-day -day life. Th this, this is a normal thing that we see, whether it's Facebook posts, social media posts, right? We post something. We go back. How many likes did I get? Wow, it's been a whole half hour, and I've only got one like. Or look, I got 10 friends who think I'm cool. They liked this or whatever the situation may be. We call somebody. We want to text. We want a, a call back. We text somebody. It shows red. Why are they ghosting me? It's been 10 minutes. Right? We just want, we want things immediately. I, I remember counseling a young man who was in a dating relationship and I'd given him some things to consider and to pray about in regards to his relationship. The very next day he called me early that next day. I have prayed a ton. I have prayed so much about this and I'm convinced this is the right answer. It wasn't even 24 hours later. <laughs> really? Prayed so much. Even if you constantly prayed, I don't think you've prayed enough since we talked. It was, it was less than 24 hours. We want, we want immediate responses. We don't want to actually wait on the Lord. We don't want to trust him. We don't want to ponder. We don't want to meditate. We want immediate responses. We lack persistence. Be faithful. Uh, what comes with this temptation? We're not, we're not receiving immediate responses gives us long-term needs to be prayerful over. That's a benefit of this. Not receiving immediate responses, it actually gives us more drive to be persistent in our prayer. We need to press on. God draws us to himself in regular communion through our needs over which we continually pray. If we don't see an answer to pray immediately, to prayer immediately, that's not a reason to give up. That's, a, that's God's kindness to you. Persist. Keep praying. And say, God, if, if there's something that you don't desire of me in this prayer, mold my prayer, shape my prayer over time and be faithful. At times, God doesn't give us what we ask for because it's rooted out of selfish needs. We ask for ourselves. So lack of persistence. Next, lack of preparedness. Lack of preparedness. That's the third one. John Piper in Desiring God says, unless I'm badly mistaken, one of the main reasons so many of God's children don't have a significant life of prayer is not so much that we don't want to, but that we don't plan to. If you want to take a four-week vacation, you don't just get up one summer morning and say, hey, let's go today. You won't have anything ready. You won't know where to go. Nothing has been planned, but that is how many of us treat prayer. We get up day after day and realize that significant times of prayer should be a part of our life. But nothing's ever ready. We don't know where to go. Nothing has been planned. No time, no place, no procedure. And we all know that the opposite of planning is is not a wonderful flow of deep, spontaneous experience in prayer. The opposite of planning is the rut. 
If you don't plan to a vacation, you will probably stay home and watch TV. The natural unplanned flow of spiritual life sinks to the lowest ebb of vitality. There is a race to be run and a fight to be fought. If you want renewal in your life of prayer, you must plan to see it. Be intentional. Make a game plan. I remember my first semester in seminary, I had a prayer class and the predominant requirement for the class was to spend an hour of prayer a day. And that was, that was a big increase from what I had experienced at that point. And I remember the first morning waking up and going, okay, I'm all in on this. All right, what should I pray? And I just started praying a few things and then, you know, opened my eyes and I'm like, all right, how much time, how much time have I got? It was like seven minutes and I thought, what am I going to do for the next 53 minutes of prayer? I went, okay, well, I know what I'm doing for tomorrow. I'm making a plan. I, I need to have some intentional thoughtfulness to this. And so I started a plan. Here's passages I want to pray through. Uh, Valley of Vision is a wonderful resource. I'm going to pray through one of those. Here's a list. I'm going to pray for these people every day, these people multiple times a week, these people once a week, these people every other week. Uh, I'm going to actually have a, 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 a specific intentional rotation of prayer. Here's where I'm going to take prayer requests. Here's how I'm going to notate them. Here's how I'm going to remember where I put it Here, and, and so forth. And all of a sudden, as I got into that, it was no longer hard to figure out how to fill an hour of prayer. It was hard to fill, figure out how to spread it out so that I could get it all in, which was a wonderful, wonderful problem to have. And so lack of preparedness. The reality is, is that distractions abound. New dynamics of life are thrown at you every day. Children move to different seasons of life, have different needs. Just when you feel like you get a groove, something changes at work. And the struggle is real. It's difficult now with social media and the quickness of life, the pace of life. It's as difficult as ever to make sure we have intentional time to be alone. Just to find that can be difficult. To shut things out, inputs from the outside. Technology, hobbies... Ultimately, those things aren't the problem. In light of all of the competing things for your time and attention, at the root of it, it's not an external problem. It's a heart problem. How are you doing? How are you valuing this? We also neglect the discipline of biblical meditation in our prayer life. We know the benefit of that from Psalm 1. And so we need to make a, a plan, make it a priority be intentional in your prayer life. Well, next, as we kind of wrap things up this morning, I want to talk about aids to a life dependent on prayer. And you simply could just do the opposite of the hindrances, and that would help you. But there's also some proactive things to put on as well. And the first is readiness. Readiness. Pray at all times. Be ready to pray. It is good to have devoted, intentional time of prayer to break away and be undistracted. It is also good to cultivate a disposition where you are recognizing the Lord's presence in all circumstances, and so you're always ready to pray. You're praying throughout all of life's issues. And the sad reality is, is that sometimes it seems we're more ready to talk about praying for others than actually praying for others, right? How, how many times have you been guilty of the, wow, I'll be praying about that. You don't write it down. You don't pray in the moment. Weeks go by. Oh, I wanted to give you an update on that prayer request. Oh, oh yeah. How did that go? <laughs> Never prayed for you. Oh, I'll pray for that. I'll pray for that. I'll pray for that. 
I, I have made it a practice where if I tell somebody I pr I'll pray for them, I either write it down as quickly as possible after that conversation, or I stop in the moment and I pray. You just need to be, be intentional, be ready for that. Be diligent in that. Next, what's another aid to a life dependent upon prayer? It's devotion and alertness in prayer. Alertness, that's your next blank. Devotion and alertness in prayer. Colossians 4.2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. We're oftentimes too self-reliant. We're we're self-dependent. We think we can manage our days independent of God, right? That's, if, if we have a, a sorry prayer life, a, a reality of what that reflects is a self-confidence in our independence to be able to navigate life's issues apart from the Lord. We're oftentimes too self-reliant, and yet we are called to be devoted and alert in our prayer. We're to be spiritually desperate. As the, peer, as the deer pants for water, so does my soul pant for you. You think about God that way. Have you ever been parched, so thirsty, you just can't wait to get a drink, drink of water, and you're just gulping down that water because you know your body needs it. Your mouth is dry, you're feeling the effects of dehydration. That's how we should long for the Lord. That should be our desire in drawing near to the Lord. That as a deer pants for water, so we pant for our Savior. spiritually desperate. We need God's power and his grace and his strength every day to aid us in our pursuit of the Lord. Uh, we need God's wisdom to walk in a manner worthy, and so we need to be devoted. We need to be alert. Also, there needs to be a cultivation of submissiveness and surrender. Submissiveness and surrender. That's your next letter, or I get just your next bullet point there. Submissiveness and surrender. Prayer that is consistent with what you know about God and his will. And prayer that seeks to be obedient to God and what he has said. There's a submissiveness. There's a yieldedness in us to the Lord. And if you look at Ephesians 6.18 and Jude 20, particularly a yieldedness to the spirit of God working in us. You can't be selfish in your prayers. Uh, a prayer that that lords yourself over God is not a prayer that honors God. Be humble before the Lord. Be selfless in your prayers to God. You cannot pray in the spirit and be submissive if you've become stubborn against the truth. There needs to be a softness of heart in regards to God's word. Now, this is sometimes where people get themselves in trouble. Man, I, I'm just not feeling soft to the Lord, so I'm not going to come to him. I don't want to come to him the wrong way. No, same thing we talked about in diligence and Bible reading. If you don't feel like reading God's word and you don't want to bring a wrong heart to God in his scripture, that sounds really commendable, but God's grace to you is his word to produce in you a soft heart. So do it anyway. Come to the Lord's word when your heart isn't in the right place and humbly pray that God would change your heart and disposition through his spirit working in conjunction with his word. Same for prayer. Don't not pray because I'm just not feeling submissive to the Lord right now. No, confess that. Lord, I, I don't want to pray right now. I am not feeling like I want to be submissive under your authority and leadership in my life, but I'm going to do it because I choose to trust. I choose to believe in this moment. 
God wants our pride to be crushed. Come before him. Humble yourself before him. And then next, spiritual concern. Cultivate a heart that is concerned for spiritual things predominantly, first and foremost. Cultivate a concern for what really matters. Spiritual growth, godliness, maturity, God's glory. Don't restrict yourself to merely praying for temporal things. Pray much bigger prayers, much beyond help me to get this job, help this this conversation to be favorable. But Lord, help, help me to be godly. Help me to be faithful. Help me to be steadfast. Help me to endure. Help me to be loving. Help me to be Christ-like. Help me to be forgiving. Those types of things. Pray, pray with a concern for others to be complete in Christ for yourself as well. Pray with the same intensity as Paul demonstrated in Colossians 2. Paul struggles on behalf of the Colossian believers, desiring earnestly for them to be encouraged and knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Pray, pray like that. Pray with intensity. God, do this work, please. Strengthen. Don't always pray for relief from trials first or predominantly, but pray for how you can grow through it. James says, consider it joy when you face trials of many various kinds, knowing what they produce, which ultimately is steadfastness, endurance, Christ-likeness. And so in light of that, in, in, in light of the imminence of trials, and God's purpose expressed through trials and God's call in trials, does it make sense to pray first for reprieve from the trial? Could you imagine that? I'm going to drive you to Disneyland, children. Disneyland's going to be awesome. That's the ultimate destination. But on the drive, we're going to talk about rides. We're going to talk about plans. We're going to enjoy scenery. We're going to have good family time. You get in the car. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Can we get out of the car? Can we get out of the... No, the car ride's equipping you to enjoy this better. We, oftentimes we want to jump out of the car and miss what God's actually doing and preparing us for what lies ahead. Don't live that way. And yet to humbly, oh man, the cup is heavy, right? If there's any way other than this, Lord... I don't want to miss your purpose. If there's another way to get the same purpose, do it. And if not, not my will, but yours. It's okay to ask God to remove trials, but don't miss God's good intention of how he uses them. Embrace that. Maximize that with a humble, contrite disposition and an intentional prayerfulness before him. Pray for others in sickness. We do that frequently. We've done that from the front. And we've also prayed that through it, the gospel would go forth, that God would be glorified, that the individuals would made stand fast, that they'd be encouraged in the Lord, persevere in the midst of afflictions, and so on. So cultivate a concern for contentment and faithfulness that God would use those things as he designs. All right, one last thing. Go ahead and look at the, uh, the page praying scripture example. I want to talk just for a moment about this, and then we'll 
think we'll just be in one group in our breakout this morning. What I want to do is, is just talk about if you have not ever made it a practice to pray scripture, you're missing out. I highly, highly encourage you to take this on as a common practice. I did that years ago where I started uh, praying two passages a week. So each day, one day, twice a week, I would pray passages that are explicit expressions of the gospel. Two days a week, I started praying uh, once through 1 Timothy 3 and once through Titus 1 for the elder qualifications, just going specifically through that list that the Lord would grow me in regards to those. And then uh, two days a week, so two times the gospel, two times personal character qualification, two times praying through a psalm, and then my Sunday mornings were praying for the service and all the different components of who was serving and what was going on in the Sunday service at church. And that was just a, a normal practice of um, a core part of my prayer every day. And what I found was it was incredibly refreshing as just the discipline of praying various texts bled into my regular Bible reading where it was prayerful constantly in my time reading through scripture and, and was just incredibly helpful. Uh, so here's an example. If, you, if you've never done that before, what might that look like? Here's some ways to think through how to pray through scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a wonderful, wonderful passage from the Lord. Such great truth. You see it there. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. How do you pray through a passage like that? Here's an example. This isn't the only way. It's not an exclusive way. This is, this is how I might go about praying through a passage like this as an example. Well, first, what's the, what's the promise or what's the truth that we see in that text? Well, it's this, God is faithful. God will not allow believers to be tempted beyond what they are able. God will provide a way of escape from temptation. Those are the truths or those are the promises from that passage. Now, this is a really important question to ask also. For whom is the promise or truth applicable, right? If you're at Jeremiah 29, 11, and you ask this question, who, who are the ones that God knows the plans that he has for them, wants to prosper and, and so forth? Who is God saying, what is the truth? God knows the plans. Their plans for these people are to prosper and so forth. Uh, who is that promise to? The Jews, Israel. So for a New Testament Christian to look at that passage and say, hey, this is God's promise to me. That's not a right understanding of that passage. That's God's promise to the Jews. Now, are there things that are true about God's character that you could look at? Absolutely. But you have to ask that question. For whom is this truth or promise applicable? Well, in 1 Corinthians 13, it's written to the Corinthians as a truth pertaining to all New Testament believers. That's us. Sweet. Very encouraging. How might this promise or truth inform my prayers? Well, I can reflect on the reality that God's faithful. I can pray that God would not allow me to be tempted beyond what we can endure. That's a good prayer. Why? Because he said so. <laughs> I'm actually praying what God has always already revealed, which is, which is a wonderful way to pray. Prayer is not so much about seeking God to align himself with our wills, one of the chief blessings of prayer is an opportunity for us to align ourselves with God's will 
And so when we pray specific things that are true from Scripture, that is, that is a good expression of submission and humility before the Lord that he's aligning us with his, with his will. We can pray that God would provide and that I would take the way of escape when tempted. So putting all that together, what might that look like? God, I'm being tempted. Or God, I know that I will be tempted today. There's just inevitably, there's going to be temptations. And yet I know you are faithful. Would you please allow your faithfulness to abound in my life right now or today? I know you do not allow believers to be tempted beyond what they are able. And I plead with you now to help me withstand this temptation or today to help me withstand these temptations that I face. I know there is a way of escape from this temptation. I pray that you would help me to take it. Help me to endure this temptation that I might be pleasing to you and not sin. What are some additional passages to pray, to reflect on? Those are theirs for you. There's questions there. Uh, if, if praying through scripture is not a normal practice in your prayer life, again, I highly encourage you to do so. And if you ever have questions about what that might look like, how to do that more, hey, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm trying, uh, come talk to me. Would love to interact with you about those things. But there's, there's tremendous blessing in aligning yourself with God's word. All right, any questions before we split into group? Okay, can save them for Tom. It's perfect. Let me pray. It's appropriate we do so. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reality that we can that we can even approach the throne of grace. We know that is because of your Son, because of what He has accomplished. Thank you that we don't have to go through some horizontal intercessor, but that we have Christ, our great high priest, the one who intercedes on our behalf, the one who, because of his great work, has granted us access, access to the throne of grace. You desire us to pray. What a wonderful God you are. Help us to not neglect this immense treasure of communing with our great God. Help us to be faithful. Help us to grow all the more in this practice. And Lord, we pray that you would use our diligence, our discipline in this area to grow us individually, but Lord, to grow us as a church body, that we would be useful for your purposes and for your glory. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.